Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series. This series is hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The Mobilities and Methods Lab and New Books Network Partnership provides a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of mobility and movement. My name is Aliza Arja. Today, I'm joined by Brandy Thompson-Summers, Assistant Professor of Geography at the University of California, Berkeley. We'll be talking about her book, Black in Place, The Spatial Aesthetics of Race in a Post-Chocolate City, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2019. Thank you very much, Dr. Summers, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Um, so I'd like to start off by asking you about the beginnings of your work. Um, how did you conceive of this book and what led you to write about the 8th Street Corridor and Washington, D.C.? Sure, no problem. So I, um, this book was not my full dissertation project, like I think so many um, first manuscripts are for professors. It was half of my dissertation and how that came about was, you know, when I was in graduate school, I was interested in understanding what blackness meant. Um, And this was specifically in the context of uh, President Obama having been elected in the first term, uh, moving into the second term. And all of these proclamations that we are beyond race and everything was race neutral and post-race. And so I was really trying to get a grasp of how we could really conceive of the significance of blackness if there was no focus on race anymore. Also, even with those proclamations, I wasn't experiencing that, that necessarily, you know, in everyday life. It seemed as though blackness still had significance, incredible significance, despite um, what, what the newspapers, New York Times and others were saying. And so I was really interested in understanding um, this particular context as it related to uh, spaces, uh, in particular urban spaces, and then also thinking about bodies that uh, exist in these different spaces. So I took up um, high fashion imagery to really kind of understand this interaction between bodies um, and understanding blackness in this marketplace. Um, And then also I thought about it in terms of gentrification and urban spaces and how blackness still um, played a large role in how we understood urban space. And so with, with 8th Street, it was by happenstance. I happened to move to Washington, D.C., and had planned to do work on a political organization that I found was really a, a storefront and not really an um, organization that I could really kind of follow up on. And I took my um, clothes into the dry cleaners on 8th Street and was just amazed by the space. I There was just something strange about it. It felt different. Um, and so, you know, as I'm, I'm looking up and down the street, 
husband at the time was talking to my husband about the fact that it was such a weird location. And he had told me, having grown up in Washington, D.C., that H Street was an area that he was told to stay away from. And so I really wanted to understand how this space had been transformed from this place that, you know, a guy from Southeast DC, a black man from Southeast DC was told by his family to avoid, despite the fact that Southeast was seen as this dangerous, very black space. And so I started doing some digging um, and learned so much about how H Street was designated as this next new up and coming space um, that was inviting and entertaining. But at the same time, when you were actually there, it felt very different and complicated. And so when it came down to completing the dissertation and thinking further about the prospect of a book manuscript, I knew that the high fashion industry was going to be racist for a long time. And so I would have an opportunity to probably write that book later. But as it related to gentrification, there was this movement um, and we were seeing spaces in uh, not only Washington, D.C., but other Uh, parts of the country and the world that were shifting so rapidly that I had to really try to find out what was happening in real time and look to this past in order to tell this complete story. So that those were the origins, but it, it just kind of blossomed from there as I spent more time on H Street and as I thought more about the importance of architecture and design, thought about infrastructure, transportation infrastructure, and really understanding the aesthetics of, of, of branding um, and marketing a space in order to attract newer, wider, and wealthier uh, tourists and residents. Wow. Uh, Well, I have to say, I personally am very grateful that this fortuitous sequence of events brought (laughs) us this book and your work. Um, And, you know, going back to where your research is located, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the post in the post-Chocolate City. Mm. And, you know, how does this post figure into your understanding of Blackness and neoliberal Mm. city-making? Mm. Uh, that's a great question. And, and I was very deliberate in my selection of post as, uh, as it differentiated from other ways that Washington DC's gentrified and gentrifying, um, neighborhoods and, and the city itself had been described previously. So I had seen, um, you know, these particular names like, you know, latte or cappuccino, um, really a lot of, food and chocolate um, metaphors that related to the whitening of the city. And I wasn't convinced that that was really the movement of the population necessarily. And I really wanted to account for this discursive shift into diversity um, that didn't necessarily identify white as the next step. And so I used post in a way to think about knowing what was beyond the preeminent chocolate city that existed in the mid 20th century and beyond, but more so to account for the fact that there still could be traces of blackness that remain in particular ways, but were beyond our understanding of what it used to be in, in the yesteryear. And so post doesn't predict what's next post just lets you know what's already in the past. And so there still is this opportunity for there to be a change. It just might look different. So in a way post is somewhat hopeful, despite, you know, what you might think originally in terms of reading the, the book and reading the t- um, title, but really I'm trying to imagine other possibilities and not foreclose this idea that the, that the former chocolate city is automatically becoming white. 
that's actually one of the things that I really appreciated about the book that you know you don't confine yourself to a specific narrative, which we're you know frankly kind of used to in seeing studies of gentrification, but you show that it's a place that's constantly in becoming. Um, so you know, thanks a lot for uh, spelling that out for our listeners. Um, and you know, another important contribution of the book is your concept of black aesthetic emplacement, and I found it you know particularly powerful since it puts the production of black space without black bodies into perspective both in D.C. and for many cities beyond. So I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit about this concept. Sure. Uh, So, you know, as it goes back to my dissertation research in graduate school, I hadn't named it as such, but I, what I started to recognize um, in terms of the relationship between these very two different areas, um, again, high fashion and then kind of gentrification, urban um, revitalization and gentrification, was this aesthetic element to understanding how Blackness still played a role in the development of both areas. So with DC and particularly, you know, this H Street Northeast corridor, which was a commercial, um, a very important commercial corridor specifically in DC to working poor and working class black people. I was starting to see the ways that it wasn't necessarily black cultural production that was playing a huge role in how the city was shifting, but instead ways that the city developers and other private or elite actors were using a concept of blackness in order to attract a different kind of clientele or tourist um, population. And so that comes really in the form of particular objects or phrases it could be sounds, it can be um, actual images, but these ways that it was drawing on a certain understanding or conception of blackness in these exceptional, iconic ways, you know, that would really kind of make uh, residents and again, tourists feel good about the fact that they're engaging the space. In contrast, you'd see these ways that everyday forms of blackness, ways that black people were ultimately just trying to live, were not necessarily desired and desirable. And so there were ways that black folks were being pushed out explicitly, who were drawing on these everyday, again, uh, conceptions of what it meant to be black in this city. And so black aesthetic emplacement was this way that blackness was, was intimately used to, again, draw in capital and to really kind of fortify the boundaries around which people were supposed to interact with the space. And I saw this as being a very jarring um, practice and something that certainly continues in in various realms. Um, And it was something that became immediately clear to me as I entered the space and understood kind of what was going on. Yeah, I think it's very powerful that you're bringing thinking with the body and aesthetics uh, in these relations of capital. Uh, And on that note, I kind of want to circle back on diversity, which came up in the way that you were thinking about this project. And, you know, in thinking about gentrification through this aesthetic lens, you uncover diversity as a significant logic that shapes the H Street corridor. Um, And, you know, what does, I guess, what does diversity come to mean in this context? And, you know, what work does it do and what does it preclude? Mm, excellent questions. You know, I, I think we are 
all pretty much familiar with the movement around kind of diversity, equity, and inclusion that exists not only if we think about the state, but also, or at least this foreclosure that's happening with the current administrators, um, federal folks in the White House, um, but in particular ways that universities, um, the media, again, other institutions are really kind of committing themselves to understanding diversity in this vast way. And so as it related to DC in particular, but thinking about these modes of gentrification generally, there was this commitment to diversity that was supposed to be represented by art or represented by product placement or represented by um, really these historical narratives of place. And so, you you know, I, it, it, diversity ca- became more about literally just putting differently colored bodies somewhere on a street, in a store, um on a bus, right? And so in these ways, you have this seemingly multicultural space on H Street where different people who were, you know, representative of different ethnicities and backgrounds played into this narrative and this logic of just having a whole bunch of different colored people on the street. And so it made you feel as though the space was integrated and that people were actually having equitable access to services, but that wasn't necessarily the case. You'd see more, you know, non-Black people entering these establishments and buying expensive items or really kind of ways that services that served a poor and working class um, uh, population previously disappeared. And so you'd see more of an emphasis on those services and products that required you to have some money. Uh, And so in that case, you would see black people on the street who were waiting to catch a bus or who were socializing with their friends who were waiting to catch a bus or literally standing outside of various establishments, but not necessarily um, going in and purchasing uh, items in those places. Right. So diversity just kind of served as this way to allow the state to make certain claims about its, its commitment again to inclusion and this narrative against uh, black displacement, despite the fact that, it was happening at, at alarming rates. I'm wondering how, you know, this conception of diversity speaks to um, black bodies, right? Like you mentioned, you mentioned in the throughout the book that this black space is produced without black bodies. Yet, you know, we also see these tensions about putting black bodies somewhere. Um, so I'm wondering if you can elaborate a little bit on that. Sure. So I th- I think it's a dual process. So it's I was actually talking to one of my graduate students the other day, and and she was mentioning she's a performance studies um, student, and she was mentioning the ways that uh, I discuss in the book this disarticulation between the black body and blackness that happens a disembodiment. And so I think I'm doing both. I'm doing I'm doing the work of recognizing how blackness can circulate without the presence of black people, but at the same time how blackness is actually attached to a black figure in order to represent, like you said, diversity. And so in a way, the disarticulation, the disembodiment happens when there's black aesthetic emplacement, when you can use um, black or blackness or chocolate to describe a particular end display at Whole Foods, or you can use it to, um, again, uh, identify where public art should go in terms of reflecting the, the diversity of the city. But then at the same time, 
right? So that's the disembodied element. At the same time, you have the blackness attached to someone's body to represent um, crime, to represent a kind of a cool aesthetic, um, to represent uh, long-term established communities that people were kind of folding into this historical narrative of, of DC and H street being diverse. And so it both are happening in the service of capital, both the disarticulation, disembodiment, and this attachment of blackness to a black figure. Talking about historical narratives attached to diversity, um, I want to shift our attention a little bit about the effacement of particular histories. So you show in the book that gentrification means um, sort of the erasure of particular histories, especially for branding purposes, for branding particular neighborhoods. Um, And I wonder if you can talk to us a little bit about that, especially in relation to authenticity and nostalgia. Sure. So I I focused in particular on um, the cultural tourism uh, programs that that happen in a lot of cities and the the money that goes behind them in order for the city to tell a particular story about a, a neighborhood and again, to increase traffic. But also the designation of, let's say, Main Street's programs that really kind of um, signify a particularly nostalgic idea of what a safe, welcoming um, urban space can be. And generally, Main Streets are not um, supposed to be for urban areas, but more so rural and suburban. And so I talk about how these particular narratives don't. And on the one hand, they certainly do erase um, populations, right? I didn't go so far into the book to think about um, indigenous or native populations that existed prior to um, settlement, um, colonial settlement in D.C., but in particular thinking about how and again, these everyday instances of Black communities were not really kind of held up um, as being significant. And instead, there was more so this um, process and, and storytelling that made it seem as though the Black cultural landscape was existing alongside various white ethnic um, cultural landscapes, and that they seemed to be operating in harmony, despite what you know, historically what we know happened, especially in, in D.C. and other parts of the South, uh, because D.C. is still the South. So, you know, there are these ways that the erasure ends up being um, not so much disappeared, but more so incorporated into this other narrative that provides really an alibi for the um, destruction of Black space, an alibi for this emphasis on, again, a multicultural urban space that has always been so. Therefore, it only makes sense for us to go back to this diverse, you know, multicultural landscape. And so it, it's an effective tool. And again, it, it, it enables people to attach to a history that feels welcoming and familiar to anybody who comes around rather than recognizing the ways that black spaces have been destroyed um, or have been written over in in significant ways. I'm very glad you brought this up because, you know, there's a particular quote from your book that really um, makes me think about, you know, this erasure as alibi. Um, You say, we talk about displacement, but less about those who remain in black in place. So, relatably, I was wondering how containment figures into the production of 
um, a cool aesthetic in the city? And, you know, how do you see the relationship between containment black bodies and black immobility? Great. Yes, that was a, an important uh, thread for me, um, especially in, in the last chapter, because I'm thinking about it, thinking about questions of containment, surveillance, um, policing space, um, and, and immobility in particular. And so where, you know, I find that displacement is a significant uh, way to think about the movement of Black people um, in places like Washington, D.C., and especially um, outside the boundaries of the city. What's also important are the ways that Black people remain, are, are incorporated into this particular urban fabric. And so what that means is you can remain if you are located in a designated area. Or you can remain, especially in a um, gentrifying commercial corridor, you can stay if you're, again, catching the bus, or if you are a laborer, or if you are um, someone who works construction, or again, so you have to have a designated role in places like this. You're not necessarily assumed to be a consumer. And in a lot of ways, as we know, not just in Washington, D.C., but other areas, as surveillance um, capital really rears its ugly head, we see the ways that, you know, apps, various platforms like, you know, Nextdoor, um, Ringer, et cetera, are able specifically um, target Black people as those who don't belong in particular spaces and, and, and areas. So, so the containment element was a way to still incorporate in, in ways that Black people were still necessary to this project that was supposedly progressive in its incorporation of diverse people, but specifically designated you know, a particular role for Black folks in this city. And, and I'd say this, um, that it's significant to think about it in terms of D.C. being this location that has a very robust um, black middle class and has for several years. But what's really interesting and important to me in my investigation is understanding literally like everyday quotidian understandings of blackness and black living. And so it's not these examples of, you know, political exceptionalism or ways that a lot of middle class black people have been able to rise to, um, different ranks and, and accumulate wealth. I'm more interested in those who, who didn't, um, and, and how, and how this, um, these practices and, and structures are perpetuated through, um, this, this maneuvering, um, that the state and capital really kind of, um, and how they inhibit, um, black movement and mobility. And I think something that you do very remarkably in the book is showing how, these maneuvers are intimately tied to white mobility or projects of white mobility, let's say. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about that in relation to, you know, the certain narratives or uh, moments of capital um, that have come to produce H Street? Mm. So, yeah, you know, I, I think that's something thematically that I've, I've really focused on just in my writing generally. So as it, as it related to H Street, it was important to understand, let's say, the roots of, you know, rebellion that took place after Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination in 1968, to understand that it wasn't a, a group of irrational Black people who wanted to destroy their neighborhoods that led to these particular um, rebellions, that instead there was this push against disinvestment that was occurring um, specifically as it related to what they call white flight, right? 
even the designation of white flight makes it seem as though um, it, it makes it seem as though it's passive, right? That there wasn't this intentional or very specific way that the federal government provided um, not only resources, but encouragement and, and a pathway for white people to be able to relocate to the outer lying suburbs and establish communities while taking those, um, taking, extracting wealth from the city center. Right. And so, you know, as I'm, as I'm trying to think more, even today beyond the book about ways that, um, disinvestment specifically of black space and black communities automatically and really um, directly contributes to the accumulation of white communities um, and the development of white communities, that this isn't a new phenomenon, that it's been happening historically for quite some time. Um, I had written in a um, New York Times op-ed about that history generally that wasn't necessarily situated only in Washington, D.C., but that's happened all over the country, and ways that it's important to understand, again, that this isn't new, that there's this kind of cyclical um, element that's happening where you have the the city center um, uh, described in certain ways or particular narratives that that carry and, and encourage um, a s- settlement into the city or the suburbs, right? And so how these kind of discursive maneuverings can impact how white people are able to move fluidly. We're definitely seeing this with COVID-19. And as we imagine, people are pissed. White people in particular are mad that they're stuck, right? And that they don't have the freedom to be mobile. And, And a lot of that is because they are so accustomed to being mobile and being able to move freely throughout various spaces the ability to escape, the ability to get out first. We can think about Katrina, right? The ability to go somewhere else, pick up your things and go and establish a new home elsewhere. That doesn't happen in Black communities and specifically those poor and working class communities. So really there isn't this accidental passive way that white people are able to, again, freely move, but instead it is specifically because of this disinvestment and this very violent um, expression of capitalism that um, enables them to, and really kind of bolsters their movement into different locations. Yeah, that's a... That's a wonderful assessment of, <laughs> of the both the recent conjecture and historically you know, mm. how cities come mm. to being, mm. especially in the US. Um, and I, on that note, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about how you came to these uh, assessments. Uh, so on methodology, I was wondering how you work through this project, especially as you try to understand the shifting urban landscape. Yeah. So, you know, I'm trained as a sociologist and specifically um, qualitative uh, methodologies really drive my interests. But what was really important as a social scientist was for me to also incorporate art and humanities, right? So thinking about also media studies, like I said, visual studies, and having a more complex um, picture of what's going on. So in ways that 
I, I realized that ethnography would be important, but not enough. And so there was this way I had to engage the archives, um, whether it be newspaper archives, but again, thinking about narratives that the city was formulating in order to tell a story about uh, what blackness has meant to DC, but then also, um, narratives that the city was uh, more recently engaging in, in order, again, to tell a story about how Blackness has had this impact on the city. So there's the historical narrative, and then there's a more contemporary one that reformulates the historical. So methodologically, I felt it was important to really have a mixed methodological approach. Um, Like I said, to do ethnographic research, participant observation, literally just sitting on a bus stop, at a bus stop, watching people go by, going to bars and restaurants, um, going to community meetings, talking to people randomly, which isn't my forte. I am so much of an introvert. So it was really kind of difficult for me to get out outside of my shell and just talk to strangers. But there were ways that I knew my subject position, me being a black woman and a black middle-class woman had an impact on how people talk to me. So because of that, I was able to speak to officials, some politicians, um, other city leaders to not only um, get their personal stake in these narratives and also kind of the, the development of the space, but also to tell me professionally how they represent their particular agency and what the intentions and strategies of the agency were to to change the to change the area to change the um, development of the space. So I, I often talk to you know when I'm giving presentations, it's usually graduate students who want to have a chat with me afterwards because I think that they're often struggling with limitations around methods, especially depending on their training and and, and certainly with. Um, with social scientists, that they want to be able to incorporate more experimental methods in order to tell a particular story. And so because I wanted to do work that didn't just focus on an official narrative, but to really kind of deconstruct what official meant, authenticity meant from the state, but then also tell a different um, story and really do the ethnography of space not just of people or a location, but the actual space telling a story. And again, that required me to draw on um, different elements and incorporate um, methods that I'd really come to uh, learn more about as it related to design, planning, um, African-American studies, like I said, media studies, visual studies, visual culture, um, and, and still sociology and geography. Thank you a lot for this. I think this will be very um, helpful for our listeners, especially those who want to do interdisciplinary work. Um, and yeah, I love this idea of you know doing an, an ethnography or like a study of not just people but of space and how it opens up. Uh, all these different approaches. Uh, I hope you were right about this. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, I think um, was at methods were always a challenge for me because I felt as though I wanted to do my own thing. And, and when you are in a particular field, the expectation is you follow protocol and, and whatever precedence has been set. And so I'm not great at that. I really, I color outside the lines too often. And so, yeah, maybe I should, you know, at least think about it more in terms of how to operationalize that. But oftentimes it really is about instinct and knowing the spaces that you're entering and how you allow it to tell the story over you um, and, and determinations that you've made based on reading or just being there for a short period of time. So yeah, I got to think about that. Yeah, and maybe this is, you know, one of the possibilities of the post-chocolate city. 
<laughs> right. Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah. And lastly, on a related note, I want to end sort of in a hopeful way. So um, what kinds of political possibilities can emerge from a post-chocolate city? Uh, great question. And something that unfortunately I wasn't able to get into as much as I wanted um, in the book. But I, I really, and, and this is something that I'm thinking about now for future projects. I think that there is a politics to just staying in place and using your body to remain. Uh, and so specifically as it relates to Washington, D.C., and we're seeing various movements where Black Washingtonians are being very clear about the fact that they are still here. They are still located in D.C., despite what everyone else might think in terms of a demographic shift. And so the politics of staying um, are really clear to me in establishing home. Um, I, I draw on bell hooks a bit in my, well, a lot actually, in my book um, in ways that she really kind of imagines aesthetics and, and the possibilities of it, but then also really establishing a home place, a home space. And so I, I think it's powerful to remain um, and that, you know, these um, strategies to remove people has everything to do not only with the actual body, but also culture and any other uh, manifestations. So it's important to really hold on to the traces and, and really kind of stay um, in ways that you can't be, you won't be uh, forced to be removed. Um, and so what that looks like um, can, can be different um, in various locations and contexts. Uh, I'll give the example I've just written recently about the Don't Mute DC movement in um, DC that started last year and this way that um, Black activist organizers and, and residents in DC are using go-go music as a way to establish their place and belonging in the city as it's disappearing. And so the play, playing the music loudly and in the street has this real significance to locating or creating this sonic geography that, that establishes, again, place for Black folks in D.C. And so that imagery is something, but also sonically how those aesthetics are really kind of taking over place and space can really speak to a politics of the future in ways that Black people can hold on. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Dr. Summers, for joining us today and for your insights. Thank you for having me. This is great. <laughs> I'm glad you had a good experience. <laughs> uh, I am Aliza Arıca. This discussion of Black in Place, the spatial aesthetics of race in a post-chocolate city, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2019, is brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening.